We're rolling now, we're, John. Well, <laughs> hey, John. Man, you're, why are you just trying to mess me up right at the beginning? <laughs> no, go for it. Sorry, my apologies. Well, are we, wait, are we rolling? We're not going to talk about this, but biking into the office to do the podcast today, I was thinking about why I put on a gray attire. Like every single thing I'm wearing is gray from my shoes to my shirt. Your mic is gray. And my mic is gray. So I'm like, hey, let's talk about colors. And, you know, Vex can talk about why she likes to wear black. And Will can talk about why he likes to wear red. And well, I can make up something about what, why I'm wearing gray today. But we're not talking about that. We're not talking about that. Although no. it kind of did provide a spark for the subject, for the banter, which is, you know, it, sometimes it might be tough to be optimistic, and it's certainly with everything we're up against, uh, that makes sense. Yeah, and brace yourselves, folks. It's going to be kind of a downer episode. Oh, no. <laughs> so we so we really were just like, hey, we gotta, we're just going to go around the table, because we do record at a table, and we're each going to share just one thing that makes us optimistic. Yeah. Because we're communists. That's right. Embracing That's revolutionary optimism, red. folks. That's why I have red on. There we go. That's yeah. that's cool. That's your, that's there we so go. Who, who wants to get it started? Vex is she's actually wearing her traditional bull shirt yeah, to the podcast. The surgery shirt. <laughs> um, I guess I'll get it started then. Cool. So things that make me optimistic. Um, well, as some of you know, um, I'm a trans woman. Uh, came out in like 2015, and I was just talking to like Will and John about this. The only reason, really why I was able to come out when I did was because of the movement that came before me, you know, and I would read about the Lavender Scare and Lou Sullivan and a bunch of his like newsletters, FTM newsletter and stuff like that, Marsha P. Johnson and others who under immense repression, you know, that's that's substantial enough to wipe out your livelihood entirely and put you in cages for no reason, you know, and round you up when you're just trying to congregate with your peeps. Just something as basic as that we that we really take for granted, you know, like same sex marriage, too. I mean, that's that's like a constant sort of debate, um, you know, and it's just like that came out of years and years and years of militant struggle. And that is precisely why I'm able to be out now. Um, and I want to contribute to that movement going forward. You know what I mean? And finally kick over the people who's got who've got the boot on our necks, so to speak, and and you know, ally with with other people, other workers. And uh, you know, I just want to f up capitalism. I will and transphobia. Sorry. I would snap my fingers, but I don't really do that. I I, I thought yeah. it deserved it. Yeah, there you go. That 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 definitely deserved it. Um, I was smiling. For me, he was smiling. Go for it, Will. Like similar to that, but different. But just like, um, in my personal life, and as like a kid, you know, I my parents got divorced, and so I've seen like family problems happen, and sometimes you know when that stuff happens, you see people accept how things are. Like this is how things are. And I have to find a way to deal with it. And I just kind of got to the point where I was like, but things can be different. And when I started learning about politics and becoming more conscious of things, I still had that mentality of like, there's another way. There is a different way we can do these things. And we have to be hopeful for that. And, you know, in my, sure. in my personal life, I always just try to find ways like, how do I get a better apartment? How do I find a, a new dog walking client like how do I do these things and I get resourceful and I learn and I find ways to push myself and I feel the same way about politics if I don't know I need to learn and if something seems hard that's obviously what you should be approaching 
ask. Absolutely. You know, I like that because... I'll snap my fingers There you that. go. I'll snap them too, although I don't know how to snap them. Wait, let me try. Wait, you... Hey! So weak. My, my, my hands are also kind of a little sweaty. They always are, so... Anyway, um, you know, actually something Will just said made me start to think something. I was going to say one thing and I'm still going to say it. But first, (laughs) I want to say that optimism really is a choice. And it's a choice that revolutionaries don't also (laughs) really have. If you choose to be a revolutionary, if you choose to actually be someone who's going to fight for socialism, fight for working class power, then optimism is a necessity. Um, there's no way that we're going to be victorious over such an odious and powerful ruling class, which is the goal. And so optimism has to be key to that. It doesn't mean burying your head in the sand. It doesn't mean being um, unrealistic. Do you know what I mean? Right. But it means taking all the different components of society and the struggle and making something good out of it, right? And being able to take like the correct action and to carrying it out together and optimistically. So I was just going to say, what I was going to say was just the, the youth and the fact that so many youth have been won over to socialism, not because socialist organizations have agitated for it or have been even given an audience to win them over, because we haven't been. Like the corporate mass media, the capitalist media doesn't give us that platform. But nonetheless, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of young people think favorably of socialism. Like, how did that happen? That's because human beings have a great potential, especially young people in the midst of the growing crises that we face, obviously have the potential to grasp the situation and try to make something new, try to form something new. There's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of education. There's a lot of understanding a mass organization. And there's a lot of overcoming difficulties, problems uh, that beset us in this society. And it means it's a very, very setting yourself out to achieve socialism is very, very hard. It's very, very dangerous. And the only way, the only way to overcome the obstacles is to like keep your eyes on the prize. You know, keeping your eyes on the prize is how the civil rights movement kept themselves optimistic. It was like a clarion call to themselves and to the rest of society. We're going to do this no matter what they throw at us. We're going to do this. Yeah, I think being excited about winning is... Yes, yes. Have a good feeling. Well, that's the whole thing. What keeps us optimistic is is working class and oppressed people's power. That is socialism. Like actually continuing to see, which is completely a possibility, because why should we be ruled by a tiny handful of people ruling us now? We can't be, right? So it's not just optimism. It's like the goal. It's the prize. It's seeing your fellow workers and oppressed people, envisioning them, like running society, in charge, and all working together. And there's millions of examples that they hide from us of that happening without even having socialism that workers and oppressed people do every single day. Darn it. <laughs> and also, just the, the fact that Vex said, I want to f*** up capitalism, hey, that makes me optimistic <laughs> in and of itself. Just hearing her say that. Nice. Keep your eyes on the prize, folks. Episode 58.
Welcome to Crashing the System Podcast. My name is Vex Humana, and I'm joined by my co-host, John Beecham. Oh, let me get let me get off my phone, sorry. <laughs> yeah, and turn turn the ringer off while you're at it. It's happening now. Darn it. And our engineer Will. It was already turned off. Hello. My phone is already silenced. Thank you for being so considerate today, Will. You're welcome. Appreciate that. Yeah. Do you know you guys just reminded me, Alexander and I are starting to speak in robot voices to each other. Welcome to the show. Crashing the system. Crashing the system. Is recorded in Chicago's Albany Park neighborhood. Home to one of the most diverse working class, and immigrant communities in the U.S. Produced by Answer Chicago and the Chicago branch of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, we here at Crashing the System bring you progressive movement news, views, and analysis from a fighting, independent, political perspective. You will be assimilated. Oh my gosh. (laughs) On today's show, we will be speaking to Daniel Sankey, a financial analyst and member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, about the possibility of an economic crisis. And in an extended news and views, we will be talking about mass shootings, the Hong Kong protests, the embargo on Venezuela, and Israel blocking congresspersons Tlaib and Omar from visiting. So to start off this week's news and views, we here at Crashing the System would like to offer our condolences to the victims and the families of the victims uh, in the El Paso shooting and the Dayton shooting in Ohio. Um, We're with you. You deserve justice. Uh, We're actually going to move right in to our news and views segment now with the mass shootings. This is something that we missed in the past two weeks, two, three weeks. Um, But yeah, on the morning of August 3rd, a shooter opened fire inside a crowded Walmart in El Paso, Texas, a border town, um, killing 22 people and injuring 27 others. Uh, Police say the shooter posted a manifesto filled with white genocide hysteria and viciously racist anti-immigrant rhetoric. He told police that he wanted to kill as many Mexicans as possible. Uh, Of his 22 victims, eight were Mexican nationals. And the next day, the very next day, another mass shooting uh, was carried out at a bar in Dayton, Ohio, where the gunman killed 10 people and injured 27 others. Among those killed was the shooter's transgender brother, Jordan Kofer, who was of the first to die. This was actually misreported in the press as his sister. So here's kind of a correction to that. So according to the shooter's social media, he was a self-described leftist. And of course, the more overtly uh, right-wing mainstream press were practically foaming at the mouth upon this discovery, ready to exploit the shooter's supposed politics to, in essence, smear progressives, to equivocate oppressed communities fighting for justice with white supremacist violence. Not that, you know, the left, the broad left is immune to white supremacy or anything like that. Um, but for those that knew the shooter in high school, um, that you know, they would later attest to his history of, of threatening violence against women, his misogyny. One incident involved the shooter compiling a rape list with the names of several girls who had turned him down on dates, as well as a hit list for the boys in his class. Uh, the school notified the police and expelled him, but after some time uh, had passed, he was allowed to return back to school. And so this is kind of a heavy topic, but John, could you kind of make sense of this with regard to America's history of white supremacy and how the NRA and others, the gun lobby, um, are complicit in this, perhaps? Sure, you're going to put me on the spot, huh? Okay. All right, I'm on the spot. Well, let me say this. Uh, A lot of the politicians are talking, and even the Republicans are talking about gun control in the wake of this. Um, Perhaps... uh, 
more rigorous uh, background checks, um, maybe the restrictions of certain types of weapons. Um, but I personally really don't think that gets to the heart of the matter at all. I mean, there's already so many weapons in the United States. I mean, how, how it seems almost, inc- although I think we can, and we shouldn't say that we couldn't reduce the amount of violence or and reduce the amount of weapons necessarily. But I think the heart of this issue is really what you just said. I think it's the white supremacy. I think in order to solve this question, especially now, as you have a white supremacist in the White House who is emboldening white supremacists and the acts of violence, white supremacist violence, homophobic violence, sexist violence are all on the rise. In fact, I was just telling someone the other day, was it on the podcast? I don't think it was. You know, at a certain point, these things just start to escalate. They start to roll. They start to have their own initiative. You have, right. you have, you have more and more of these types of shootings. And unfortunately, I think that's what we're in for. And some of them might even be more explicitly, although these were political, like, like, like uh, organized and political than what's happening right now. It's very dangerous, and we won't get to the heart of this question unless we have a mass movement against white supremacies that shows these, even these individuals that what, it, what is happening is unacceptable. And we need a much, much, much more sharp resistance against Trump and, and what he represents. And not just Trump, but the entire system. This is endemic. And it's just come back out now at this point of instability. And you have the right and the demagogues using this stuff and being completely culpable for it. Like they're talking about impeachment. I mean, honestly, someone like Trump, a racist in the White House, and now everyone's admitting it, should be whatever. I mean, in chains? I don't know. Behind bars? Sure. Something. I mean, he's complicit. These murders, actually, he should be charged with murder. I'll say it. Well, I think that something that's very telling about this, something that you brought up and goes back to your point, John, is um, the media bringing up the fact that he was, quote unquote, a leftist. You're talking about the Dayton shooter. Yeah. yeah. And uh, sorry, I didn't refer to him specifically, but um, yeah, they're, they're referring to this person having or not having ties to leftist politics or whatever you want to say, but then in any other case, omitting the political aspect and like, yeah, trying, I don't want to talk about the white supremacy. Yeah. Just trying to leave that out. And it's like, I see what you're doing. Like it's very convenient for you to attack progressives, but it doesn't help you when you attack white supremacists. Right. And what do we really have to show for his supposed leftist politics? He followed a bunch of Twitter accounts. That was really the extent of it. He was not himself an activist or anything Yeah, they want to make everything, right? Were you finished? Yeah, Yeah. I'm finished. They want to make everything a left-right thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not. it's, It's a white supremacy versus the vast majority of the population thing. It's a capitalist society. It's the ruling class versus the working class. I don't mean to be like you know, too hyperbolic about it and, and, and shoot past all the other issues. But this is really dangerous to working people. Who's getting, sh- who's getting shot? Whose families are being affected? Do you know what I mean? Right. Disproportionately, it's oppressed people, working people. I mean, you know, who goes to, do, do ruling class people go to Walmart? No. No, they send their helpers to go I to mean, Walmart. Do you know what I mean? I know it's just, it seems like I'm going too far with this analogy. But this is a scourge. This is not like a sort of a left-right political debate. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? This is the vast majority of the population against a tiny minority of the population is fueling this. I have a, a quote here from that was made during uh, Donald Trump's presidential announcement speech. Which I mean, is, we are leftist. I don't mean to say that we're not. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. And this, is, this comes from like June 16th in 2015, and this is sort of 
you know, a harbinger of what was to come. Quote, when Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're sending people who have lots of problems and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And in some, I assume, are good people. You know, end quote. This, this kind of rhetoric here doesn't exist in a vacuum. If somebody who ha- had espoused those kind of politics prior to that now suddenly hears the president saying that or sure. then, you know, a presidential candidate. But, you know, now we have the president still espousing this kind of rhetoric they're going to feel emboldened and every the media the mainstream media has obscured all of the sort of political motivations of this for the most part or or msnbc uh, and others Um, and they did that with columbine you know that, that was such a shock to so many so many people in the 90s how could this happen what influenced these two teenagers to do it was it video games was it music rock music etc and they totally left out the big chunk the big thing uh the beam in the eye so to speak was that they were both racists they were both white supremacists well they were doing the same thing that people do today still is that true the columbine yeah they were wearing shirts that had natural selection on them and stuff like that weren't they on a lot of internet forums as well absolutely a lot of this is happening is that there's just a lot of people online having they feel safe talking about white supremacy online and then they act on it they're very detached in that way too because you know for them it's just you'll default and i don't want to get into too much of their insular culture or whatever but it's just they're so detached from what their rhetoric like how that materializes in reality you know what i mean and they can say x amount of things and and laugh it off like it's some kind of joke but then we see where it leads to right like 22 people dead in el paso yeah you know it's real it's real and so we just want to close this yeah. this this portion off by saying once again our condolences, you yeah. know, and you have our solidarity. That's a good place to end. But I'll do. I do need to say uh, a couple things. Sure. One thing about the what is it Reddit something Chan, something Chan whatever Fortune whatever, whatever it is whatever it is. I mean, we live in a very alienated society. I mean, yeah. To a certain extent, it's like, do we really want people to be communicating through those channels? I mean, you know, I mean, I think we have to. That's one thing. Um. The other thing I forget. So no, I know. I remember. I remember. It's just like I, I said, we're leftists. I just want to make clear, like we're leftists, yes, but we're socialist. We're working class before we're leftist, because there's plenty of working class people who are not, you know, leftist, right? And right, who right. are genuine, earnest working class people. I mean, I think we should be honest about that. But there are also people on the right wing, and we want to fight them from, you know, united front from the left. So hopefully that cleared up whatever was left unclear before. Am I supposed to talk Whatever about Hong Kong left now? Unclear? You're supposed to talk about left Hong unclear. Kong now. Yeah. Am I? Yeah. Okay. So, John. Well, I just, I actually, I think we need to talk, we, we're talking about it because it's in the news. It's, it's fairly big, although maybe it's not the largest news item on a daily basis here. But it's ongoing. We haven't recorded for a while. It's kind of important, so we felt like we should say something about it. Um, and we're not going to go into the background. There's some, there's some articles you can find on... Um, liberation news to go into the background you can find some other information but i want to go back to the 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 protest started in um against an extradition law and we detailed that on a past episode actually i don't even know what episode that is but it could have been our last one it could have been two episodes before that we need to to record more regularly i think i believe i I agree with you and we apologize for letting you down by out there by not recording more regularly but the Chinese government assented to the protesters' demands. I mean, pretty quickly, because they were just like, 
this is not worth the escalation, the protests, the clash. This is not where we're going to take our last stand with the quote unquote Hong Kong democracy movement, which is, you know, really only superficially about democracy. I mean, it's about restoring sort of uh, the capitalist complete role and the colonial imperialist role over Hong Kong, which is a very important um, financial hub. But since then, the protesters have continued. And you might ask, and I think Will asked this when we were discussing this before the for the episode here, you know, why do they keep going? Why do they keep going? And, you know, they've even gone to the point now where they're, perhaps people have heard of the takeover of the airport or whatever. Their banner there is is like an American flag. It's the United States yeah. flag. And their chant is like the, not the Pledge of Allegiance, the Star Spangled Banner or whatever, which, by the way, is a really, really racist song. Yes, Super racist song. Yeah. And all along, the protest movement has had a massive strain of wanting to return to British colonialism. I mean, there's a sign, maybe it's only one sign, I think it's actually much wider than that, of actually the sign says, make Hong Kong great Britain again. And there's always been this thing amongst Hong Kong's elite of being better than Chinese, of being racist towards the Chinese, that they're Hong Kongers, right? And there's a lot of anti-communism, anti-socialism, in the protest and you know the protesters are violent i don't know if people have seen the pictures in the airport but the protesters have been allowed to be in the receiving room of the airport and some chinese people are like how dare you wave american and british flags yeah how dare you how dare you well maybe and we those could... people are getting punched yeah like, if in the united states we tried to occupy the receiving area of an airport and started punching incoming passengers based on progressive demands like i don't know say like shut down the detention camps or, or let let the refugees in, let let immigrants in. You know what I mean? What would happen to us? Immediately I mean, it, we'd be it, arrested. It would be, I mean, you can't say for certain, but it depends. Maybe the movement would be strong enough to withstand that. Maybe it'd be at the point where, we, where that would actually be potentially something we could tackle and not be repressed. But at this point, and at the point that the democracy protests, the quote-unquote democracy protests in Hong Kong, it's, you know, it's certainly what happened to us here in the U.S. But this is what I want to end on. This, I kind of went over that, but, I mean, I think so far China has been able to deal with this. I don't know how the Hong Kong protesters, and I think there's a lot of people here in the ruling class, even though the media is amping it up and paying attention and definitely on the protester side, especially NPR, if you listen to NPR. I don't, you know, I think that... Begrudgingly. I think, I, I think that we can't say for certain, but it looks like China is going to be able to handle this. I mean, where is Hong Kong going to go? Um, but it is certainly something that could a very a varying different you know the struggle has been engaged a variety of things could happen, and we need to continue to kind of hold the line here. We're not with the Hong Kong protesters, we're not with the U.S. attacks on China, and we're not with the alliances between the Hong Kong protesters uh, and the United States and Britain. Hong Kong is China. It has always been China. And the Brit- the British stole Hong Kong from China in the middle of the 19th century because China refused to ha- to allow Brit- Britain to import opium into their country. That's what I was going to say I mean, too. Yeah, that's if you know if you want to make if you want to make Britain if you want to make Hong Kong Britain again, that's what you're talking about. Well, I was going to say exactly that. Like, let's contextualize what a British colonial flag means to a Chinese citizen. Bad things invoking a legacy of the opium trade and exploitation massacres it massacres massacres awful 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 stuff the same way that one might view i don't know a confederate flag in the states yeah and for the vast majority of hong kong the british appointed a white 
uh, Viceroy or whatever the title was, all the way up until just before Hong Kong was going to become China. Then they started doing like phony elections, like under in Hong Kong, like like U.S. elections, like under phony. British colonial rule. There were caravans that were picking up corpses of folks who had overdosed. For instance, like I mean, that was that was pretty frequent. We're talking about a colonial power that regularly used starvation of masses of people to invented concentration to, camps. Yeah, just like how can no? I just can't. Yeah. No. Also, I have an article here. Leader of violent protests leaves Hong Kong to pursue masters in U.S. <laughs> Folks, <laughs> yeah. he's going to Yale. Actually, there were protests just like this in 2014, and Vex just mentioned yeah. this. Actually, yeah the uh, the guy that's going to right. Yale is actually part of that. Right, and and those protests were against the electoral process, uh, and now we have these protests uh, in 2019 against the law. Uh, you know, and they're pretexts. This is what I really want to wrap up with. These are pretexts. We have a movement in Hong Kong, a pro-capitalist, uh, elite, racist, Western-leaning movement that really is substantial. It's not going to go away. The question will have to be resolved. And it's coming out at a time in which things like this are happening all over the world where you have protests that are of an openly reactionary character. It's like they're not even trying to hide it. We, we, we said this in a former episode too. And you can tell the difference between the 2014 and 2019 protests in terms of how many British flags they're flying and how ostentatious they are about like hearkening back to colonialism. So what's happening in Hong Kong is not unrelated to the growth of reactionary fascist, white supremacy, out and out pro-capitalist, anti-people movements. So this is just another front in the world struggle and we have to be on the correct side. We have to defend China. China China's sovereignty must be defended. It's absolutely imperative for workers and oppressed people here to do so. Folks, we're going to pause for a break, but we're going to be right back after this in-house plug. Stay tuned. Crashing the system needs your support. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to the real resistance, then please go to patreon.com slash crashing the system and become a monthly patron. You can also donate on PayPal at answer at chicagoanswer.net and crashing the system podcast on GoFundMe. Every single penny you contribute will be used to crash this racist, sexist, homophobic system. Welcome back to part two of News and Views. News and Views. That's right. And we're going to start off with Venezuela. Wait, can you hear the keys in my uh, pocket? I cannot. All right. So, Will has the story about the embargo against Venezuela. So, Will. Yeah, that's basically the story. There is an embargo against Venezuela. Um, they're, you know, tightening the news, heightening the economic warfare, and we should call that warfare. It's, right. it's everything except for an invasion. Um, first, they were coming for... In some ways, it's more brutal because... Um, you know, the U.S. has so much economic power. Totally. And it's much easier to do with the pretext of humanitarian concerns or whatever. And you're saying, well, we're not going to go to war because we realize that's too severe. But the economic sanctions, that'll hurt without hurting. Yeah. And I mean, right. to Bull- your point about the, the humanitarian aspect, it's it would be, in my opinion, and I think objectively, fact that that would just be totally farcical because one of the things that they were going after right before the embargo was put into place was the food program that feeds 
I mean, it's been it's been given to like three fourths of the population. You're Venezuela. talking about clap, right? Yeah, yeah. and it, that was a, that was an initiative supported by Juan Guaido, and clap. Oh no, the the attack against the clap. attack against okay. clap was uh, you know supported right. by Juan Guaido, um, and the opposition has also like you know they have their own food distribution programs to try to like basically do like a media campaign like look we're feeding children, but the government is doing the majority of that food distribution, and the people very much support that program, and so. Uh, this this embargo comes after that attack and it was on August 5th I believe I mean we've been gone for a little while um, we're back yeah we're back but you know we thought this was important to talk about because um, I mean there was a there was a speech that John Bolton gave about how it's going to work in Cuba it's worked in Nicaragua before it's going to work in Nicaragua again like he's just going after these progressive movements and directly and blatantly saying like we're okay with starving the people like we're okay with creating social and economic upheaval in order to essentially just have a new market for whatever we want pretty much yeah it's war short of war um it is war. we always say sanctions and in this case an embargo we're talking about the full regime of sanctions an entire embargo against venezuela and up to like a naval blockade yeah and they've been talking about it. Yeah. People might ask, like, well, why are they doing this? I mean, they haven't been able to go anywhere is the, actually the answer to the question. Um, they've decided to escalate uh, the aggression against Venezuela because pre- precisely because they have not been able to go anywhere. The Venezuelan people, the majority of them, have stood strong, have defended their sovereignty. I think it's either today or a few, few days ago, um, three days ago, and actually just ongoing massive protests to defend the country they're called sort of an, they're kind of like anti-trump protests so thus far the venezuelan people have been able to defend their country and i think they're getting more help from china there's no reason to think that the u.s will be successful this again is an important battle it's just like we were talking about hong kong that's why we're talking about this is an important front in the battle against capitalism and imperialism but vex you wanted to interject no yeah i mean we, we we talked about this at the beginning of the episode the need for optimism and something to to remember here is that you know the democratically elected government of venezuela still stands that's correct you know yes. what i mean despite that's all that's being thrown at them levied against them they're still here folks yeah well, i think we should be clear-headed about this but that's true i think something that's very important to support that point is that like in the past when these economic things have been more masked and like a little bit more veiled behind some other like motivation or like we're going to support democracy because the elections weren't good or like just something like that when there was like some other no like like pre-qualifying condition for like why we're doing this but now john bolton and like it's just like super super unmasked just straight up talking about imperialism colonialism and they're just they're just going for it and they're not hiding and I think what that is doing is like the actually the opposite of what they intended it to do um, because they don't understand the social forces in Venezuela and like people that were maybe not as sympathetic to Chavismo or to the, the you know, the socialist movement within Venezuela. Yeah, they're being won over. Right, right. Now they're starting to see like, oh, I see who my enemy is. Yeah, the escalation of the embargo, that's true, but the escalation of the embargo... The, um, have definitely shown that the Trump regime, and it's not just the Trump regime, large parts of the ruling class here, large parts of the imperialist establishment are not opposed to this in any way. Yeah, what I Democrats mean, are do here? Right, right. But it does show that the, the things might actually get even more intense. Yeah. Despite 
the sort of the victory of fending off U.S. imperialism and the fact that Russia and China have come to the aid of Venezuela, and there's a great chance that Venezuela will continue and will survive and will outlast this attempt. But it does show that things are getting more intense, so there is going to be the need for more defense of Venezuela. The, the Venezuelan people and the people of Latin America are going to continue to have to be mobilized, and in their mobilizations, we must come to their aid in any way shape or form we can for us the struggle is global the struggle is international it's not just here in albany park it's not just here in chicago or illinois or the united states or even in this hemisphere it's a global struggle and it's been engaged and the sides are becoming more and more clear and we just we need to make sure you know organization is key because it keeps us our our organization our working together keeps us sharp in our understanding of what side we are on and what we need to do. Side are you on? Nice. Side are you on? I've heard Son, that song. Which before. side are you on? Which side are you on? I in other news. So my father we, was a miner and <laughs> I'm a miner's son. So he's gonna I'll he's gonna yell at me for not cutting this out. Till every battle's won. There you go. Which, Which side are you side on? Are you on? Which side are you on? I'm trying to figure out figure out a uh, how like you gonna a, cut that out a pithy segue into our next uh, topic here. Hey, look, see, we're getting the optimism right. We even broke out in song. Yeah. Can I can I get a hallelujah? That's another Pete Seeger song. Didn't the, he do that uh, one no, too? No, the, the, which side are you on? It's not a Pete Seeger. Yeah, he, he sings, the songs, well, he he sings really, that one. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. He sings them all. That's, that, I was thinking of his version when I sang it. We actually, I have, we have a children's book of the woman who was a miner's wife who wrote that song. Nice. Yes. Yeah, it's a picture book. It's great, actually. I don't know what, it, I think it's called Which Side Are You On? It's a woman and I can't believe we are so lame. We need to look up the name of who wrote Which Side Are You On? We can't just be that woman. Did she write uh, Little Boxes too? No, that's completely different. <laughs> Which side are you on? Was written by because Little Boxes is actually the song is written by um, a very like influential like working class um, folk singer. She was she lived in the Los Southern California area. Which side are you on? Was written by Florence Reese. Shouts out to Florence Reese for writing a banger. Let's let's <laughs> let's see. A little like box was or written by. It's like Mavis or Malvina Reynolds. Malvina Reynolds. Seriously, that's Malvina right. Reynolds wrote a lot of good songs too. She wrote this as a song called "This City Was Built by by Workers' Hands." And yeah, it's I like love that song. Black, white, and yellow and stuff. And it's just great. Yeah, her, it's like great. Her the source of her creativity, or not the source rather, but the way she'd approach songwriting is that she'd write a song a day before breakfast on an empty stomach, so that would motivate her to write, and then so she could eat. Wow, that's kind of hardcore. Yeah, that's like John Brown asking his children to punish. Whenever John Brown's children did something bad, it's this is actually probably worse than that. But whenever John Brown's children did something that was like sort of unworthy of their personhood or whatever, he had his children whip him. Wow. Can you believe that? <laughs> no, but that's some serious people that John Brown was a serious dude. Like he was like he and his children were very his children were extremely loyal to him. His children fought with him. 
I, I remember you know? reading the uh, Du Bois biography of him and just like weeping because there is oh my gosh there yeah. is there's a chapter when he was like a younger man like 14 and he he'd grown up and he hadn't really seen like slavery in action because he, he grew up in a kind of a rural place where that was kind of separated or that was my understanding yeah but um so his first exposure uh, to slavery was a boy about right, his right. age being merc- mercilessly whipped and he him seeing that and being shocked at like 14 and him turning to his father and saying, are they not God's children? And like that right, for right. me was right. so powerful. Well, you know, um, John Brown was a small farmer, a businessman and like a cotton trader. And it was a cotton or wool. I can't remember. Right. So. Um, you know why I'm saying this is because don't discount someone because of their background ever. Do you know what I mean? He, I mean, of course, working in oppressed people, especially the most oppressed, are going to be the vanguard of the fighters and any movement for socialism. But we should never discount. In fact, we can't. People, the 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 backgrounds they come from. Do you know what I mean? I mean, Lenin was middling class. Mao was middling class. On and on and on. Yeah, you know, Frederick Fid- Engels. Yeah, yeah. Fidel was Fidel was the son of a Spanish landowner. Actually, you know, the list Fidel was basically. Spanish. I mean, he's, you know, white too. I mean, his parents were, his dad was a Spanish landowner. His mom was Spanish too. Che came so, from a bougie family. Yeah, so we can never, we can never, we shouldn't keep going down a list like this or anything like this, but because the list will keep going quite honestly. But we have to be as revolutionaries. We have to be very, 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 very scientific, very, very scientific about people. What were we talking about again? Well, I was trying to talk about Israel, but we went off, we went off the rails. Good rails though. Good rails. So yes. we're going to go train is a good metaphor for this uh, episode. So now let's get back on the dang rails with this story on Israel. Well, we're kind of running out of time. So let's do this one quick. So yeah, Vex, uh, probably everyone's heard of this one uh, and we are running out of time. So maybe we can keep this one a little brief, although it's very important. Uh, again, probably everyone's heard uh, Congress people, uh, Omar and Talib were scheduled to go to Palestine, Palestine, Israel, and the Israeli government, Netanyahu's government, blocked them from uh, the trip. Now, let's just think about this for a second. I just want to say two things. One thing is, okay, so uh, you have a two congresswomen, U.S. citizens, right? right? A country that gives Israel billions of dollars in aid every well, I won't say day, but a lot of aid, right? Um, you have one of them who is Palestinian, whose grandmother lives in the West Bank, right? And you have the Israeli government saying that these two people cannot come, right, and visit. And just think about that for a second. Like, really, really think about that. Like, really? Like, in what world does anybody think that is possible? Even like groups like APAC and across the board. Yeah. You've got Republicans and Democrats who are highly supportive of Israel. They're like, what the F? Right. Like, what exactly? So here's the second thing. You have someone in charge roundly of kind of U.S. foreign policy, although obviously not entirely. The Pentagon, the CIA, and even other parts of the ruling class have a lot to say about this. Some Congress people are actually are very influential in foreign policy. You have someone like this, you have some. You have a situation like this where you have people who think that doing something like this will actually be beneficial for U.S. imperialism and even Israel to like go this far out, you know, sort of off the rails. I know we're talking about rails and think that you can get away with this. So Netanyahu, Israel, they did back down and they said to Tlaib, you come, you can visit your... Um, 
uh, your your grandmother, but she said no because wh- how can you accept that? Yeah, it's such an outrage. There's no one in their right mind that could think that it was it was that it's just, that it's fair, that it's democratic, that it's right, or that it's even good strategy. Even good strategy. It completely delegitimizes right not just Trump, but the entire establishment here that they would have a person in the White House and you know, they, they, they would go through with this type of thing. It completely de- delegitimizes Israel, right? I mean, it's a colonial settler, apartheid project, who now has someone, believe it or not, who's so far right-wing that they would block elected U.S. Congress people who are U.S. citizens, right, from coming to the country, and especially Talib, who is Palestinian and has relatives there. I mean, people can come from all over the world of whatever citizenship, right? As long as they're you know, part Jewish, they can come. In fact, they will be given citizenship in Israel, right? How can you have anything more blatantly racist and apartheidist and an affront? Like it's an affront to the people of the world and it's especially an affront to the Palestinian people. But it also shows how, un, how completely just the Palestinian people are in continuing to battle against the, the Israeli state, the occupation, and the apartheid character of the Israeli state. Yeah, yeah. I think you got that one. I have, yeah, Anything literally to nothing to add literally? but a thumbs up. I wasn't sure if Two you were. I, was, I wasn't sure if you were sad. You had nothing to add, or you're just like. Phew. No, I was like, no, yeah. I think you covered all the bases there. What I mean, you, you said Alexander. He does this. Alexander does his a, thumb. His thumb goes up and down whenever we try something new. So we tried that. Thumbs up. All thumbs right, up. All right, got a thumbs up. Thumbs up and thumbs up. Two thumbs up. Uh, enthusiastic thumbs up for part two of this week's news and views. News and views. News and views. And now, a word from our producing organizations. Crashing the System is produced by Answer Chicago and the Chicago branch of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Answer Chicago is the local chapter of a national organization. Act now to stop war and end racism. That's dedicated to building a nationwide, independent, fighting mass movement for real change. You can follow Answer Chicago on Facebook and Twitter, or check out the website at AnswerChicago.org. The Party for Socialism and Liberation believes that socialism, the collective ownership of society's wealth and rational economic planning, is the solution to the environmental crisis, endless war, racism, and all of the evils of capitalism and class society. We believe that in order to achieve socialism, a society of equality and plenty, we must have a revolution. The old order of competition, alienation, and oppression must be replaced by a new world of cooperation, sharing, and real equality. We have branches all over the United States and many friends around the world. We are building a party of revolutionaries to help make the people's dreams of peace and prosperity a reality. We hope you join us, either as a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation or as a friend in the struggle. You can follow PSL Chicago on Facebook and Twitter or our website at pslweb.org. And now on Crashing the System, we're joined by Daniel Sankey, a financial policy analyst and a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, to talk about the chatter of a possible looming economic crisis. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah. So let's just get this going. Let's just start it off. You want to just uh, give us a rundown of uh, what's going on on Wall Street and in the, the, the capitalist cycle? Yeah, absolutely. So... 
What recently happened that's produced a lot of chatter in the space is that the bond yield curves became inverted, which is a complicated way of saying that the amount of money, the amount of profit that so investments in the United States Treasury and the United States dollar have dipped to an especially low rate relative to one another. And why we care about that and why Wall Street cares about that is because at least in the last 50 years, that has always heralded a recession. So before a recession occurred, that sort of um, movement of prices of the bonds occurred, and then the recession wasn't far behind. So what you saw um, you know, earlier this week was a huge dip in the Dow. It's bounced back a little bit since Friday, but not to erase the significant losses. Um, and what you see is a lot of people talking about, you know, the next coming recession. Um, this is, you know, a capitalist economic system, which means that recessions and depressions are part of it. Um, they are built in to its operations. So it's not really a matter of if there's going to be a recession, but when. Uh, and, you know, frankly, a lot of economists and myself included believe that it will probably occur in the next 12 to 18 months. I think that's pretty accurate. We've had expansive economic growth for the last 10 years. And the reason for that, of course, was because 2008 was one of the worst economic crises in U.S. history. So when you're at the bottom, you have nowhere to go but up. And that's kind of how capitalism works from a moment of great poverty and economic crisis um, is the opportunity for very wealthy people to become even more wealthy. Um, Profit rates can be kind of restored once the value of everything has been crushed and crashed down as it was in 2008. So it's not surprising we had so much growth for so, so long. But, you know, as I mentioned before, the downturn is inevitable and it will come for us. And I think it will it will be on the horizon 12, 18 months or so. So actually, can you elaborate a little more on why capitalism has downturns? One. And then two, what I mean, what does this mean? What does it mean for working working in oppressed people uh, in the United States, I guess, but also just, you know, globally? Yeah, definitely. So. What it means is uh, capitalist economic crises are always crises of overabundance or overproduction. So what that simply means is it's not that we don't have enough to live on. Um, That's what economic crises were in the past. So in the medieval ages, you would have a flood, a whole bunch of crops died, and you didn't have enough food, and people would starve and die, and that was an economic crisis. Um, Now, because technology and productive capacity is such that we can meet all of our needs, Um, Crises occur when too much has been produced that can't be sold. And that's a really important part, that can't be sold. It's not that we don't have enough for people. We don't have enough to sell. So in 2008, uh, we saw that in the housing market where a huge abundance of homes had been created and built, uh, but not enough people to buy them because credits on the banks had dried up. And so all this money had been spent building houses and they couldn't, you know, sell them. Uh, That's why we have approximately 8 million people homeless in the United States probably more because we don't do a good job of tracking that, Um, and approximately 16 million vacant homes. So we could give every homeless person their own home um, and still have a ton left over. But we can't do that, of course, because it would collapse home prices, and that would mean profitability would be hurt. So classic uh, capitalist economic crisis is having too much and not being able to sell it. And I think that's what we're seeing here. So what this means globally is, is no good news for working people, unfortunately. Um, when too much has been produced, uh, it causes corporations to pull back their productive capacity because they're trying to make up for lost profits. And that simply means less jobs uh, or less pay for said jobs or less benefits. Um, they're always hit the hardest and they're always hit the first. 
Um, corporations might, you know, be hurt profit-wise, but the actual people who own those corporations, the people at the very top, will do fine. Um, they're certainly not going to be losing their homes or anything like that. Uh, I think more importantly, what it means for working people, though, is this is another opportunity to reimagine how we have an economic system. If uh, economic crises such as recessions and depressions are built into capitalism, and because they hit and hurt working people so hard, um, I think it gives us a perfect opportunity to ask, why not have an economic system where that doesn't happen, uh, where that's not something that occurs, where the profit motive is not, you know, essential to the operation of the system. And, you know, that is why um, I believe socialism has become progressively more and more popular over the last five years. Certainly it's entered the mainstream through the Sanders campaign and others like it um, because it imagines a world and an economic system that produces for people, not for profits, and that can eliminate things like recessions and depressions so that something like a 2008 ne need never happen again. Yeah, I think this, I'm thinking about some things that it seem a little different to me, I'm, perhaps they're not different, but or might be compounding factors in a next economic crisis. If the capitalist system right now is confronted with a climate crisis, a crisis of migration, a crisis of white supremacy, can't solve the problems now, then on what basis in a weaker financial position, especially working in oppressed people being in a weaker financial situation, how, how are we going to get out of this? Like, where is there going to be the money to completely reorganize the global economy on a stable basis? Where is going to be the money to take care of immigrants and refugees and provide jobs for everyone? And more than that, in the face of that, the white supremacists are already making the argument that we're losing our supremacy, we're losing our piece of the pie to other people and seeking to attack those people and being egged on sort of by sections of the ruling class. How is that problem going to get any better if there's a capitalist economic crisis? And if you add to that, like the trade war that the Trump administration and large parts of the ruling class at least are partially for in attacking China, I mean, you have a real, real uh powder keg, especially if you, like I said, not just add the economic crisis, but I, I believe that the economic crisis is related to all that stuff. I mean, you have a real maelstrom there of like potential uh, crises. And I think on a larger extent, like socialists and revolutionaries, I mean, we need to sort of not be predictive, but to understand uh, the need for preparation and organization. I think uh, organizing is definitely needed, especially now more than ever. I think in the midst of uh, this looming capitalist crisis, um, we need to have a clear message to provide to working people about an alternative to white supremacy, towards more nationalism, towards a war against China. We need to propose an alternative that says, you know, it's not about not having enough money. The money's there. We have tremendous wealth. 54% um, of our budget is spent on war, um, harassing, murdering, uh, you know, terrorizing countries around the world when instead we could have free health care or quality education for free or things like that. So the problem isn't money. We got money. We got a lot of money. Um, the problem is what we do with that money and how we use it. And right now, the message of white supremacy, the message of this really intense nationalism that's anti-China, really anti-everything but the United States, um, is gaining ground. And we need to propose an alternative to it. And we need to be very clear and very compelling in our presentation of socialism, presentation of a new economic system that can actually solve these problems, that can root them out at their base, uh, at the profit motive that drives all of this war 
and all of this profit making. Um, I think it's really important for progressive people, socialists, revolutionaries, activists to start, um, you know, speaking this message in a compelling manner to working people, because unfortunately there are very dangerous right-wing forces that are doing just that and that are organizing for it and are, are compellingly pushing their message forward. And we need to meet that and beat that ultimately. Um, so there's an opportunity in the midst of this crisis. Um, it's not guaranteed. I wish it was. Um, and it's really up to people like us to work that much harder to ensure that we can uh, present a compelling vision to working people about how things could be and how things could be better. Daniel, we wanted to thank you for joining Crashing the System. I'm getting the signal that we got to wrap up. Um, but if you'd like to add anything more, feel free to do so. Yeah, I think um, if I could just, you know, add one thing is it, nothing is inevitable. Sometimes I worry that, you know, some Marxists and some socialists think that, you know, this kind of collapse of capitalism is inevitable and this kind of advent of socialism is. It isn't. It's going to take a lot of hard work from all of us. And so I really want to drive that message home to activists and progressive people that now is the time to work harder. Now is the time in the midst of a crisis of capitalism to propose an alternative. And um, together, united with the people and their struggles, we can do just that. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on A Crashing the System. Thanks, Daniel. Take care. Take care. All right. Bye. That's it for this episode. Make sure to spread the word. Share, tweet, or subscribe to us on Patreon. Catch our podcast every week on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere else podcasts are found. Join Answer Chicago and the Party for Socialism and Liberation. But even more than that, join the real resistance to this racist, billionaire-dominated system that would rather fund endless imperialist wars than feed the poor. Thanks for joining Crashing the System. My name is Will. Vex. Hey. John. That's me. And myself may be done with this episode, but we are in no way done organizing to crash the system and build a better world from its ashes. Take care. Take care and check out our latest mini-sode that we released, uh, Cooking the System. Bye, folks. It really sizzles. And pops. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Bye. Bye. (laughs) 